We're going to have our reading now. We're going to carry on with our series in John. So it's John chapter 7, starting at verse 14. So as we start this reading, um, it's in the midst of the Jewish festival of tabernacles. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. My name's Simon. I'm one of the pastors here. Neil, my colleague, has taken his remembrance suit to Philip Street Chapel uh, this morning as we continue to explore with them uh, a partnership that would see the gospel go out to uh, Bedminster as well as here in uh, South Bristol. It'd be great to have John 7 open uh, in front of you. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a rich earth. dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave breathing English air, washed by rivers, blessed by sons of home. In nineteen fourteen, the poet Robert Brooke he wrote those words as World War I began. He was in his mid-twenties. He was a dreamer. He was an idealist. And he painted a picture of war as a path to glory, of forever linking yourself with the country that you are fighting for. The path to greatness, the path to heroism, the path to glory is found through war. William Sherman, general of the Union Army in the US Civil War, he saw it rather differently. There's many a boy here today who looks on war as all glory, but it is all hell. See, this idea of glory can be so attractive. Whether it's an army going to war, or the much more trivial cases of England heading off to the World Cup or Peter Kay heading out on his stand-up tour, the pursuit of glory, the pursuit of honour, is familiar to us. It's that desire to be recognised, to be remembered, to go down in history for glorious reasons. 
And even if we won't end up being like Winston Churchill, being like Bobby Moore, we still like the idea of being well thought of, of having a slice of glory, however small that may be. You see, the heart of glory is putting someone or something on display. Like the fireworks that we've seen over the past couple of weeks, we aim to display our brightness, our beauty, our power, our ability to fascinate, all of those things on display to others. No longer, maybe, do we fight for the glory of England, but actually we all work for the glory of ourselves. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem when we start working for the glory of ourselves, because if we're honest... We aren't that glorious. And when what is inside us is put on display, it isn't quite as glorious as we hope it would be. It's like the firework that is lit, and as everyone stands back and watches, it kind of splutters a little bit and then falls off the stand. See, our world is a place where glory is longed for, but very rarely found. Now, it's just at this moment that we hear someone just clearing their throat to the left of the stage. And as we look over, we see that it's John, the writer of this book. And he's got one of those wry smiles on his face that looks a little bit smug, but also knowing. He knows something that we're missing. And as we look over, we see that he's tapping the very first page of his account of Jesus' life. He reminds us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the start of all things, the eternal Word, with God, and yet God himself. He's the maker of all things. He's the glorious one. And what does he do? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John has seen the glory of the infinite word, the eternal son, the Messiah of God. And he wants us to see it as well. He wants us to see the glory of God, to see God on display and to marvel at it all. To be taken out of our feeble, pointless searches for our own glory and to be captivated by the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that when he is on display, everything else just fades away. And as the word who became flesh, Jesus Christ, begins to teach, he talks about glory too. And as he teaches, as he speaks, a challenge emerges. Will you live for your own glory, or will you live for the glory of of God. Will you make your life about displaying yourself or about displaying your maker? We see it here in our passage that Ruth read for us just before. Look at verse 18 with me. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Two options, two destinations for glory, and one question for us. Is your life about Jesus or about yourself? 
So as we get into our passage, this little part of the story here, we're going to see first that there is glory from the words of Jesus, that through Jesus' words, God is put on display. As we read verse 14, we're clearly in the middle of something. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. Now, the Jewish calendar was full of festivals and feasts, all telling something different about who God was and what he'd done. They'd been given by God to his people so that they could remember. Back in verse 2, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that this was the festival of tabernacles. And Jerusalem would have been buzzing with people as they were in the capital celebrating God's goodness. And as it was a religious festival, there would have been rabbis and teachers everywhere instructing the people. And halfway through, Jesus joins the action. Now this doesn't seem that weird to us. If you know the story of Jesus at all, you'll know that Jesus did a lot of teaching. So we read, Jesus began to teach, and we think, great, I wonder what he's going to say. But let's just step back for a moment. Jesus was a man in his early 30s who basically up until that point had been a tradesman, working with his dad. And he came from a little backward village up in the north that nobody really thought about. He wasn't anybody really worth listening to. He'd had no formal training from the rabbis of the day. He wasn't someone worth listening to. It's like one of the cleaners at the House of Commons, standing up and declaring exactly what we should do to fix the country. And it didn't go down well. Verse 15, the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? See, there's amazement here, but it's not completely positive. They look at this guy with no training from a small town up north, and though they can recognize some good teaching, they can see bits that they think, okay, that's okay, they struggle to understand where it came from. And this is the first challenge to us as we look inside our hearts to see whose glory it is that we're seeking. See, the heart behind this question is, Jesus, who are you to speak into my life? Who are you to say things about my life that you claim are from God? You ever thought that? Do you understand more of God's holiness and his moral call on your life. As you hear Jesus describing his call to follow him as a call to die, to sacrifice everything that you are and give yourself to him, to die to yourself and to your desires, do you ever say, Jesus, who are you to speak into my life? But as usual... Jesus comes up with a mind-expanding answer. Verse 16, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. See, the way of teaching at this time was one that drew from the authority of others. As you taught, you would reference other rabbis, other teachers, people who had gone before, and your authority came from them. It's a bit like reading a book or reading a paper, and there's loads of footnotes at the bottom. Every point you made you would back up by someone else who had said it. And Jesus does that. Though instead of going to human authorities, he goes straight to God. My words come from the one who sent me. See, this young man from Nazareth, this tradesman from the building site, is saying that God has sent him. 
that he is here to bring God's word directly to the people. And actually, there is an easy way to test his words. Verse 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Listening to me is doing the will of God, says Jesus. It's a bold claim. It really is. But again, Jesus is setting up a contrast. Even he doesn't speak on his own, but the words of his father. He's pushing us to see the emptiness of a life lived away from God, a life apart from our maker. And he lands it in verse 18. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. See, parts of our culture have an incredibly sketchy relationship with truth. We talk about personal truth, of flexible truth, of relative truth. But Jesus cuts through all the noise and he sets us straight. The universal truth of all reality is that God is. And our personal truth is that we are to seek his glory. All of us united together in doing that, to put him on display in our lives. It's why human beings were created, to display the glory of God. See, Jesus' words, they put God on display and they reveal to us the deep truths of reality. They aren't advice, they aren't suggestions, but deep, glorious truth. And we struggle to believe. We struggle to accept them. We struggle to build our lives around them because our hearts aren't focused on him. Back in chapter 5, we heard Jesus say these words, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We live in a culture that loves to affirm itself that we pat ourselves on the back and say that we are moving forward, that we are better than those who went before. But actually, we don't look to find the glory that comes from heaven. We bump around, trying to promote ourselves, allowing others to build us up, while ignoring the life-giving power there is when God is on display. See, true glory, true honour, is found in listening to the words of Jesus and putting them into practice. Is that the truth which round your life revolves? Is it the truth of what Jesus says? The glory that is found in him? Or is it all about you and what you can get for yourself? And like the Jews here, maybe it's taking bits of Jesus' teaching. You think, yeah, I like that bit. I'm not sure about that bit, so I'll leave that over there. Or are you all in and saying, I want to be a man and a woman of truth, following everything that Jesus says? So we see glory from the words of Jesus, but also from the works of Jesus. See, Jesus' life was about putting God on display. That's the whole reason that he came. And he did that through his words and through his actions. Something he begins to talk about in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? See, he's going back here into verse 17. And the link between following God and listening to Jesus. And before we get into it, we need to remind ourselves a little bit of the context. See, back in chapter 5, we read 
about Jesus on his previous visit to Jerusalem. He came into the city and he made a beeline for a pool in the north of the city around which lots of people who were sick would, would lie, hoping to get into the pool because they believed it would heal them. And Jesus went straight to a man who was paralyzed. He'd been there for 38 years. He'd been sick for decades. And Jesus, in a moment, healed him. The man picked up his mat and he walked. In the midst of a feast of celebration, you think this would be an incredibly celebratory moment. And yet the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they had a problem with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath, on the Jewish day of rest. They're angry. And so look at these words from chapter 5. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God's. See, here's the problem with seeking your own glory. See, glory is putting who we are on display. But who we are isn't very nice. Yes, of course, occasionally we can do nice things. We can make people think that we're okay. But deep down, we are selfish, God-hating hypocrites. That's who I am, and that's who you are. Something we're not overly keen on putting on display. Listen to Jesus' words. Have you ever got angry? You're a murderer. Have you ever looked at someone that isn't your husband or wife lustfully? You're an adulterer. That's what Jesus says. This is actually is what gets put on display when the core of who we are is out there. There's a glorious moment in the Gospels when Jesus takes Peter, James and John and he goes up a mountain. And as they get to the top of the mountain, Jesus is, the word the Bible uses, transfigured. And Jesus seems to be engulfed by this glorious light the gospel writers, they struggle to describe it. They talk about something brighter than they've ever seen before. Or his clothes were whiter than they could ever possibly be bleached. They struggle to describe what is being seen. What is happening at that moment? The inside of Jesus is bursting out. And it is glorious light. That had been me. That had been you. It wouldn't have looked like that. It would have been like black oil bubbling out of every pore as the darkness and the brokenness, that desire to put ourselves forward, to go to war in big and small situations would come out as who we are is placed on display. And this is what Jesus exposes. This is what Jesus is getting to. He says, you bothered about the Sabbath commands while you're ignoring those that forbid murder. See, the crowd aren't fully informed in verse 20. They maybe don't realize the plan at the moment that the Pharisees have. But then Jesus expands in verse 21. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. 
And if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now this can seem a bit niche for us. It can seem a bit Old Testament. We don't really understand what's going on. And if you want to get into some of the fine detail of it, then please do uh, grab me afterwards. But Jesus' big point is that the law of Moses, in fact, all of what we call the Old Testament, is not an end in itself, but it's a way that God's glory is seen. See, Jesus wanted to take people's fixation on what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath and show them what it was pointing towards, that people like you and people like me could know God's eternal rest through Jesus. See, Jesus' healing on the Sabbath wasn't him being deliberately provocative, but about him showing the true healing that comes from knowing God through his Son. The works of Jesus, whether it's healing people, whether it's feeding people, whether it's walking on water or turning it into wine, they're all there to reveal God's glory, to put him on display. And John's heart is for all of us to see that looking for God's glory over ours is the only way to live, is the key to life in all its fullness. He shows what life to the full looks like in verse 23 when he sums up what he's come to do. He's come to heal the whole person. See, when Jesus comes, hunger and sickness and fear, even death itself, are overcome as he gives us a glimpse of what life is like when his kingdom is fully realized. And everything Jesus does, everything he says, is building up to the ultimate display of his glory, his death upon the cross. See, on the surface, it doesn't seem to make sense if we gather around the foot of the cross on Calvary. How can a place of silence be a place where his voice is most heard? How can a place of helplessness be the place of his greatest work? How can a place of shame, as Jesus died a criminal's death, hung upon a cross, how can that be a place of glory? You see, when we look at the cross, we see God on display. We see his love, his mercy, his justice, his holiness, his compassion, his tenderness, his grace. All of that and more on display to a needy world. A world that needs Jesus. See the perfect son taking the sin of the world upon himself. Giving his life so that imperfect people like you and me may know life. It's where we find glory. God on display. And the people that we were made to be on display. You see the wonder of The message of the gospel is that the Bible does talk about people like you and people like me shining with glory. It's the incredible thing is that actually we get what we want. We do get to display glory. But it is the glory that we were always supposed to display. The glory of God shining through our lives. If I should die, think only this of me that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. 
Within a year of writing those words, Rupert Brooke was dead. He was killed by an infected mosquito bite four months before his 28th birthday. And for four further years, war raged in Europe. And as peace was declared on November 11th, 1918, it was a moment of relief rather than a moment of glory. No one looked back over those four years and thought, well, that was a glorious time. War had been seen for what it was. See, our world is a place where glory is longed for, but very rarely found. So look to the source of eternal glory. Look to the place where glory never fades, where the beauty, the attraction, the love of God is always seen. Listen to Jesus' words. See his works and give yourself completely to the one who gave himself for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe at your mission to save us. That you would come from that glorious place of comfort and safety and love at your Father's side. And would come deeper than the deepest trench. To a battlefield more profound than any scene in the 20th century. And you would come to speak and to act. Father, thank you that the words of Christ have glory. Thank you that his works reveal your glory. But we thank you most of all for the cross. Because we thank you that there we find the healing that we need. We find the peace that we long for. And we find the glory that we were made to enjoy. Father, I pray for each of us here this morning. I pray that our lives would be about Jesus. Not about ourselves. Forgive me, Lord, for those times when My life is about me and my glory. But may it be that each of us are those cracked jars of clay through which shine the glorious light of Christ. Father, on this day when we rightly remember those who have given themselves for us, may our eyes most clearly be drawn to the one who gave himself for all across space and time. Father, thank you for Jesus. We delight that in him, your glory, your righteousness, your love is revealed. Thank you for your goodness to us in every way. We commit ourselves once again to you in Jesus' name. Amen.